morning. Last week we had this fancy sparkling water. This week it's just plain water. How quickly the world owes me something. Uh, if you will, head over to Nehemiah. We're still in chapter 1. Just a few words actually left in chapter 1. <clears throat> so if you will, make your way over there. Um, in case you've forgotten, <clears throat> Nehemiah's basically a slave in the service of the Persian king. Uh, and after heartbreakingly learning that Jerusalem's walls and gates have been busted down, been burned, he, if you remember back, he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed for months. And today we're going to see Nehemiah make this daring request to this dangerous king. Um, and it's an inspiring thing, it really is. Now, admittedly, there aren't many situations in our lives that are direct parallels to what Nehemiah's situation is. Uh, there just aren't. I, I tried to think back of maybe the closest one in my own life, and um, the best I come up with is, is, is when we believed God was, was leading us to, to plant this church, Manhattan Pres, uh, out here. And, and our presbytery, if you don't know this, we come from down in the southeast, the PCA is big presbyteries, lots of money, they can plant churches easy. Up here, uh, not so much. We're relatively poor in that regard. Uh, and so the idea was the only way we're going to have permission to be able to go and do this was are there funds to make sure you don't go bankrupt two months into this. Um, and, and so we had to find that outside support somehow. And we learned about this donor who was funding these dual RUF and PCA church plants in college towns. And we were like, let's talk to that guy. How do we do that? And uh, all we had to do was convince him of, of what the plan was here. Uh, and, and if we got the approval, we could go forward was the idea within Presbytery. If we did not, we'd have to find some other way, and we had no clue what other way there was uh, at this point. Uh, and so we prayed, and we tried to arrange a meeting with this, this mystery donor, and it took us, I don't know, I want to say six months in memory. I can't remember exactly how long it was. Uh, but, uh, before we finally were told, there's this certain day, you need to be in Dallas, Texas at this hotel, and you're going to meet him along with two other groups that are, that are trying to, to do the same thing in other towns. Um, and... And, and, and at the time, so we, we go down there. At the time, we're calling it the Manhattan Project. And <clears throat> the biggest regret was how many people told us, you know, that was the name of another project. We know, we know. Um, yeah, so anyway, still stand by that one. It was great. Uh, and, and so here we are, right? There's a church here. There's an RUF here. So you probably know how this story ends in some regard. Uh, and I'll give you a little more details later. But, but, but like I'm saying, there, there's not a lot of direct parallels with Nehemiah's situation because like even in this one we weren't worried about the donor killing us if he didn't like the plan right that wasn't the other option um, and you, you, you know but we don't have our safety on the line when we're talking to authorities about many things and yet the, the Lord has a great deal to teach us about this about the way we live our lives about the way we trust him about the way we deal with with running into road you know roadblocks and things like that in our life and um, you know, so I, I do want you to think about the beginning, right? You know, situations where you've needed to get somebody's approval and it was of great importance, right? Where, where the results were just simply out of your control in some way. Maybe getting accepted in the college or a, a post-grad position or a promotion or, uh, right, in business or the army or, or, or whatever. It could be in regards to purchasing a home or a building of some sort for business or when applying for a job or proposing in marriage or maybe just your parents' permission, kids, right? This is the greatest thing ever. I need their permission. Uh, it, it could be something that only God can grant, something like conception, healing, 
spouse for the person who longs for it, things like that. And, and so I, I know there are moments in our life that we can at least relate to that aspect of it, where there's some, some mountain in the way, some roadblock in the way, and, and we feel helpless. Now, before we read, I'll tell you right from the start, right, the overarching idea today is that as God's people, we know that, we need to know that sometimes God does not eliminate these things in our way. Really difficult situations, really hopeless looking things. He doesn't eliminate them from our lives, but God will provide us the courage and the faith and the integrity of character to face these trials in our lives in a way that honors him. Or as Raymond Brown says, he says, believers constantly need to accept that behind life's frustrations lies a divine purpose. Let's, let's read, and I, and I do want to remind you one last thing here, that um, the last thing we, we, we heard from Nehemiah, right, he's praying, and at the very end of his prayer there he says, he's asking the Lord, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about the king there. We're going to pick up in verse 11 of chapter 1. I keep switching Bibles because my old Bible is actually the original version of the ESV, and there's some updates, so it doesn't match the newest version. Anyway, this is my, I probably should be wearing glasses version, though. (laughs) Verse 11, chapter 1. Now I was cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given given me to the governors of the providence beyond the rivers. And and that... uh, There's my eyes. Beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that that he may give me a timber and, and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, God of heaven, today we ask for understanding of your word. We ask that our time and your word together would encourage and challenge us in our thoughts, in our faith, in our action, in the way we relate to you, the way we relate about you to the world. Please work through the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in some regard, everything we've read up to this point is kind of like a the, the prologue, setting the scene for, for what's going to happen here, right? There's this beginning of this epic story, and, and it begins then, right, with, with Nehemiah with that line, now I was the cupbearer of, of the king. 
You can almost hear it like a, a narrative over the beginning of some movie or something, right? Now, that was the cupbearer of the king, and that begins to set things in motion. We, we tend to think about <clears throat> the idea of a cupbearer and, and, and kind of picture it like the, the canary in the mine, right? There's this expendable individual uh, who, who tastes the wine, and, and if that person doesn't drop dead from the wine being poisoned, then, hey, this is probably safe enough for the king to drink. And, and that tends to be the way we think of this, this role of cupbearer. Uh, and it's true, the cupbearer would often drink the wine in the presence of the king just to set him at ease. Yes, I'm drinking it. This is safe for you to drink. It has been protected, right? Uh, but the cupbearer is no expendable canary. He was a high-ranking official in the service of the king. To be a, a cupbearer was a place of incredible honor. It was given only to someone uh, who showed unquestionable loyalty, right, because they had to protect the king's wine as well. Uh, of this, Derek Thomas beautifully says, the fact that the Persians were able to place their complete trust in a Jewish cupbearer is itself noteworthy. First of all, it says something about the nature of the Jewish response to exile. With few exceptions, they were compliant and law-abiding. The Jews did not respond to the exile by forming militia groups bent on making life as difficult as possible for their Persian masters. In a similar manner, the way the early church submitted to the Roman rule, the Jews of the period, sorry, in a similar manner to the way the early church submitted to the Roman rules, the Jews of the period of the Persian Empire were subject to the governing authorities. We see that in Nehemiah. Now you've got to think about his life. Here's Nehemiah, he lives in the palace. He spends his days, right, in the presence of the king and a lot of uh, luxurious lifestyle. He hangs out with the, the king, drinking wine often, right? It sounds like a, a dream job to some of you, I bet. Uh, in a lot of ways, it really was, even for him. It, it also puts Nehemiah in this position, right, where he has access to the king, where the average citizen of the kingdom had no access to the king like this. And so we begin to see God's sovereign purpose, even in, in this career, even in this position that's taken probably years for Nehemiah to get there, and yet that's the hand of the Lord working here. And as chapter 2 begins, we, we learn this is the month of Nisan, and, and the whole point that we're seeing here is this tells us it's, it's, it's roughly 3 to 5, because there's no exact dates on this, this is why you get the 3 to 5, uh, 3 to 5 months after when he first learned about uh, the desperate state that Jerusalem was in. Uh, that phrase right here that we see when the wine befo was before him, this idea is there's probably a festival or something going on. This is when it was broken out for these, these sort of events. And, and now we get the sense that, that Nehemiah has been waiting for the right moment. And, and this day, this, this is the right moment, right, that he's been waiting for. So sometimes we, we, we want to talk to someone about Jesus. Right? You've been praying for them. You're thinking, this is someone who needs to hear the gospel. And, and we want to, and we just do it right off the bat. And that's, that's good. That's great. Other times, we, we think, let's, let's build this relationship. Let's get to know them. Let's build some trust. Let's uh, work it in that regard because we do want to, and we're praying for it and all that. When we, when we do this, though, we, we do need to be cautious that we're not using prayer as an excuse for never speaking up about the gospel with them. We need to be prepared and, and courageous enough to not, not let a good moment pass us by when, when, we're, when we're praying and, and, and hoping to see God work in that way. Uh, and we see a great example of Nehemiah here, right? He's taken the long road, and yet here is that moment. And so Nehemiah tells us here, you can see in your passage, I, I had not been sad in the king's presence. There was an expectation that being, if you were in the service of the king, that you were not sad, that you were not glum, that you were not depressed looking, uh, anything of that nature. Um, and, 
<clears throat> so he had made, and, and so Nehemiah has made this effort to not reveal the sadness of his heart, to not wear his heart on his sleeve in the presence of the king over these, these last few months. And I know as modern day, right, people, we tend to think, well, that feels really inauthentic. Why wouldn't he just being who he was, showing his feelings? Why do you hide everything? And, and yet we understand that we too often need to hide our sadness in professional settings. And you might not think about it, but it's absolutely true. Like, you, you don't want to go to a counselor, right? And she's just breaking down, sobbing, and, and you know, the, the snotty nose thing, just falling apart, telling you about all the woes in her life when, when she's supposed to be helping you think through these things. That's not the thing you want to walk in and find, right? Or, or I don't want to go to the gym class and, and have the most depressed gym leader, like, class leader ever. Like, let's, let's do this. We're going to really get in shape today, but who cares? It's... Life's miserable. You just can't do that, right? There's some degree of not wearing your heart on your sleeve in these things. In fact, most jobs actually fall under that, like, like Nehemiah's. It requires not to wear our hearts on our sleeves in these professional settings. So, and, and I also want you to understand that he's not being some Debbie Downer. He's not, he's not sad fishing the king. Um, you heard that phrase before, sad fishing? No? Okay. I like that, just immediate feedback. No, I've not heard that. Uh, I'll tell you about it, right? Sad fishing, it's when someone won't just tell you their sorrows. When you sit down and they don't just say, here's what's going on in my life, here's, here's the issues. Instead, they intentionally, chronically are just outwardly moping. They're, they're hoping to lure you in uh, to asking about their sadness rather than just telling you. And I want you to know, Nehemiah is not sad fishing the king right now. It's just that in this moment that the Lord has, has not allowed him to, to hide this anymore. The, the strength to, to bury the sadness is wearing off in some regard in this moment. And that, that might happen to you as well at times, and that's okay. Um, and so then when the kings uh, ask about this sadness, right, and, and he comments this, this thing, well, you're, you're not sick and you're sad, so this must be sadness of heart. There's something emotional going on. This is the king really getting deep here. Uh, and in this moment, Nehemiah realizes, right, that the king has seen through all my efforts to hide my sadness. And that terrifies him. That's what we see there, right? It terrifies him. You, you see what he says, verse, verse 2, the very end. And then I was very much afraid. <clears throat> it, more literal in the Hebrew, he says, a terrible fear came over me. A terrible fear came over me. Right, it came quick on this, right? And listen, everything we are going to learn about Nehemiah going forward, everything we learn about him is overwhelming evidence that he is not a naturally fearful person. He, he is not some weak guy like that. That is not his character at all. He is bold. He is a courageous man. <clears throat> and his fear here is, is something unusual. The, the fear here, for one, right, is because his life is in absolute danger. I told you, sadness before the king could be seen as disloyalty to the king. You don't satisfy me. I'm not happy under your rule, leading to, to execution, right? And in this passage, we're going to see King Xerxes, or Artaxerxes, he's actually kind, and it'd be easy for you to read this one bit about him and think, oh, he's a really good king. I wouldn't mind that king. He's, he's a sweet guy, right? Um, that's not his character, though. Um, right, some years before, he, he had his commander of the guards just executed because he saw him as a threat. He's not a good guy. That's not who he is. And, and think about it, right? It, um, Nehemiah's sudden fear, th this would be incredibly inconsistent if this was some great working environment. 
inconsistent. Another aspect of the fear here is that so much time and prayer has been built up to this moment. What if he says no? What if I can't go help? What if there's no solution for Jerusalem, who I have been praying for and weeping for for so long? You know, when, when, when John Dunning and I found ourselves standing outside the boardroom about to walk in and talk to this, this donor, there was, there was some fear in my heart. Uh, just because we knew how much was, was riding on this. We knew people back home waiting to hear how this goes. We knew how much prayer has been going on. Because we knew Travis didn't have enough money to cover it, if not, right? We, we knew that kind of thing. There was a lot riding on that. And so there was just, it was terrifying walking in there in some regard. Um, so then before we move on, I, I do want to point out that, that Nehemiah has been such a solid and trustworthy servant of the king. And I, I say that because we start to see that the king actually cares about Nehemiah. His cupbearer, right? I mean, it's an honorable position, yes, but, but here's this, this Jewish guy, and he cares about him. It, it makes me kind of think about, you know, what about our own places of employment? Because imagine how easy it would have been for Nehemiah to have absolutely resented the king, inwardly, outwardly. To have been angry at the king because that's what stood in the way of his own freedom. That's what has caused this destruction in his, his, his city of Jerusalem that he loves so much, right? That's what stood in the, in the way of true independence for the nation of Israel. And yet the way he relates to this, this man in authority over him creates this relationship that he actually cares. I mean, how, how do you relate to your boss, your manager, your professors, your commander? Whatever authority is over you. I mean, how, how do we relate? What, what does that look like? I, do we give people a reason to actually care about the things we care about, to care about us? It's just something to think about. And so then, like, like Nehemiah, I do want you to know there are moments in your life where you, where you are going to be fearful. Like that's your initial reaction. And, and, and that's not necessarily a sinful thing. There's no calling out Nehemiah for this. It's, it's what do you do with that fear? How do you respond when it, when it comes in the moment, right? One of the things we see here in Nehemiah is despite this incredible fear that comes over him is, is that he moves forward. That's, that's courage, right? When there's fear and you, you go forward anyway, trusting in the Lord e even as we begin to make this, this major risk. Is, is there some God-honoring words or actions that, that because of fear you're holding back from? And I say that because I want you to remember that God is, is greater than all your fears. He, he gives us courage for these moments. Now, one thing I, I do love about Nehemiah is, is how his frustrations, his sadness, it's, it, it's not just something personal here, is it? I think most of my frustrations in life are, are something personal. And I, I love to see, here's this man of God who, who cares about God's glory, who cares about God's people, who, who cares about the, the church, Right? Do you ever find yourself emotionally invested beyond just, just personal matters? Do you, do you, do you get worked up and, and desire to see Christ's church flourish and whatever that might look like specifically? I just want to challenge you in that regard. I challenge my own heart, right? I mean, do you just care about my stuff or do you care about the things that are, that are the Lord's? Um, so, so then verse 3. We didn't make it real far yet, but verse 3. Uh, we finally see Nehemiah's response and he says, Let the king live forever. Right? Is he brown-nosing here? Why does he say that? He, he says it because he is intent on being respectful, respectful to the king who is in authority 
because he's about to be incredibly honest at the same time. Look what he says after that, right? Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Okay, first of all, that idea of the graves, you're going to see that twice in this passage. What's, what's going on here is that the Persians just revered their ancestors, revered their graves uh, in a way that the, the Jews, not to the same degree, and, and yet he's understanding, he's, he's appealing. There's a strategic aspect to that. He's trying to speak to him in the language that he's going to understand about going back there. Uh, overall, though, th- this is a significant statement for Nehemiah to make, a bold statement, because about 10 years before this, the, the king had, had stopped work on Jerusalem. He had put out an edict that was forbidding this from happening, uh, for any more work going on. And so to, to understand that, right, the history of this, what Nehemiah is saying to the king right here is he's saying, I am sad be- because of your edict, because of you, because of what your policies have been, my people are suffering. It is a huge accusation he is making to the king with this statement. And both Nehemiah and the king, they both absolutely know this accusation, what, what's going on here. And can you imagine just the heart-stopping moment for both of them? He just said that to me. I just said that to the king. He's going to kill me. So it leaves you wondering, how, how's the king going to react, right? He, he responds by, by getting to the point. So what do you want, Nehemiah? It's shocked that he cares that much. And, and this is where we, we see one of the most amazing instances of prayer in the entire canon. The, the king asks, what are you requesting? And, and Nehemiah tells us in, in the pause that follows, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Right? He didn't fall on his knees. It's not some, give me a few minutes while I pray here, sir. It, it is just a split second. Whatever he, he prays, it is certainly silent. It is incredibly brief. It couldn't have been many words or thoughts at all. No one observing this would have even seen a prayer happen at all. It would have just looked instantaneous in some regard. Um, you know, Brown points out here, he, he says, it, it, this portrays the intimacy of prayer. When in those seconds he prayed to the God of heaven, it was not a desperate cry to some distant God. He was communing in secret with a caring father. There was hardly even time for words. This short pause becomes this sure prayer. This, this brief sigh becomes supplication. We, we spoke last week about setting time apart to meet with the Lord, and you should, and that's good, and we, we want to do that. That's the kind of thing that builds into these, these smaller prayers, right? But, but we do need to learn, and we learn today that, that we can and should be praying tiny prayers all day long. You can speak to the Lord in, in little moments. It's, it's, not, it's not crazy to, to talk to God all day long in prayer. It's not crazy at all for, for his children, for, for us as Christians. It is, it is wise, it is intimate, it is something we... we, we Make it part of your life. Even just little prayers, right? Lord, Lord, help me to be patient in this moment because this person's driving me nuts. Holy Spirit, help me to remain kind in this grocery store, wherever you are, right? In the moment, it's just, you're ready to go. God, give me wisdom in this moment because I don't know what to say to this person or, or give me courage in this moment. Just these short prayers like that. We don't know what he says and, and that's great. It's between him, it's between him and the Lord. And so then after that briefest of prayers, he lays out the request. If it 
pleases the king, and if your servant, that's him, right, has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And maybe he's strategically not saying Jerusalem to not like rub salt in the wound in this moment, right? He keeps saying Judah and my father's place. Um, anyway, this is a big ask on, on two fronts. First, he's, he's asking the king to reverse that, that previous edict. Could you just undo all that policy? And second, he's asking the king to, to send him, his trusted cupbearer to Judah, which is 900 miles away. He couldn't exactly commute day by day, right? He's going to be losing that. Telecommunications, long way away. Um, probably wouldn't work well for cupbearing anyway. Uh, before we hear the king's response, we're, we're told that the queen was present. No idea why. We, we can come up with ideas. We can, you know, possibly she had some influence over the king. Maybe he's softer in this moment. Maybe that was strategic, you know. He's always in a good mood when she's around. Uh, something like that. In any way, she influences him in some way. Whatever the case, the, the king is quick at making this decision. He, he agrees immediately. And in fact, that's, that's the implication right at the very beginning, right, where he says, so how long will you be gone and when will you return? That's, that's kind of like if you've gone in for a job interview and they're like, so when can you start? They're not asking you that because you didn't get the job. We're just curious if we did give you the job, where, if you could start, uh, right? That, that's what's happening. He's, he's accepting it. And, and so we don't know how long Nehemiah's project will take. I, I feel confident that he didn't tell him the 12 years it actually takes. Just 12 years, and then I'll be right, right back here. Um, but regardless, his request has, has been a success. And, and, and while it might be tempting in this moment for him to just, let's just get out of here, let's go celebrate, right? Whoever's been praying with me, we're going to talk about this. And, and, you know, we got permission to be done, but Nehemiah and I decide, you know what, I'm in this moment, the Lord is blessing this, and, 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 and he decides there's two more things that I, I need from the king. Now, these are not on-the-fly requests, <clears throat> And in this moment, just think, ah, oh, I wonder what else we need. Uh, <clears throat> these requests reveal to us that, that while Nehemiah has been praying for all those months, he has also been planning. He, he has been researching to the degree that he can know what's going to be needed from a distance. He, he, he's been finding out the stuff that they need. And so he knows in this moment that there are two things that he needs and the king can provide. Protection and provision. Those are the two things he's going to ask for. And, and so Christian learned from this. Do, do not be reluctant, but, but be c courageous, right? They ask for help from those who are most able to help you. Sometimes we are far too timid in that regard. And so Nehemiah asked for a letter <clears throat> for passage and a letter to get him lumber. Now, the first letter is about protection. As he travels uh, past the Euphrates rivers, that's the area he's talking about on his way back to Jerusalem, uh, he's going to be going past these same governors who had persuaded the king to make this edict to begin, to begin with, that you can't be building on Jerusalem. There's all kinds of other things out there that could be dangerous in these travels. Uh, and further, as he shows this letter to each of the governors along the way, he'd be provided security for traveling through their region. Uh, that's the way this works. Now, there, there's something here that I, I want you to see, something that's very relevant to us as Christians today. <clears throat> you see, 13 years before this moment, uh, Ezra, probably going to make Ezra look up here, aren't I? Uh, Ezra, he was a fellow Israelite who loves the Lord dearly. Keep this in mind. A fellow Israelite who loves the Lord dearly, he refused the offer of the Persian soldiers uh, escorting him and these exiles back to Jerusalem. We don't want that. 
In Ezra 8.22, we give the reason, or he gives the reason. He says, because the hand of our God is for, is for good on all who seek him. In, in other words, we don't need your protection, Persia. God will protect us. We'll be fine. And, and so here is one faithful servant of the Lord, Ezra, who sees refusing to accept protection from the Persian king as a sign of their trust in, Lord, in the Lord. This is our showing the trust in the Lord. And yet, in our, our, our passage here with Nehemiah, we see another faithful servant of the Lord who loves the Lord, Nehemiah, and he sees receiving protection from the Persian king as a means by which God protects them. I can't help but see a correlation between this and, and how we all viewed COVID vaccines as an example, Right? Many things, but this is just one example. Some faithful Christians have, have viewed refusing to receive the vaccine as an act of trusting God to protect them from the virus. We don't need that. The Lord will protect us. While others, faithful Christians, have viewed receiving the vaccine as a means by which God has provided them protection from the virus. Who's right? You probably have an answer for that in your head. Well, well, who was right before, right? Was it Ezra who refused to accept protection from the Persians, trusting God to protect him? Or is it Nehemiah who sought protection from the Persians as a means by which God providing it? They both honored the Lord here. They both were trusting in the Lord. And unlike most Christians today, neither Ezra nor Nehemiah condemned the other one here. L listen, in instead of ostracizing brothers, sisters in Christ, and I mean this from both directions and not just on this. Let this be an example for anything that we're going to face going forward. But instead of ostracizing brothers and sisters in Christ, we must make every effort to understand their view, every effort to love them well, every effort to, as Romans 14, or 14, 19 says, to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The other, just going to move on after that, okay? Uh, the other request that Nehemiah makes is, is for a letter securing free limber, or timber, rather, right? He's, he's been researching, he's been planning, he even knows the name of the guy, Asaph, right, who, who, who's in charge of the royal forest. We don't know anything about this Asaph, there's other ones in the scriptures. Uh, the only thing we know is that's a Jewish name, so that might be why he, he, he was able to hear about this. You know, yeah, my brother Asaph works there, you, let me tell you about it. Uh, anyway, it tells us, right, uh, Here's another Jew who's risen to a high position in the Persian government. It also tells us he's, he's being wise here, right? He knows what he needs. Um, so, so when John Dunning and I met with the donor, we, we also came in with this plan. Uh, we had all sorts of information about Manhattan, about K-State, all this. Uh, we, we had budgets and all that. Travis put them together. Uh, we thought he had researched it. Apparently he'd copied it from somewhere. <clears throat> it worked out perfect, so, you know, praise the Lord for that. Uh, anyway, just as Nehemiah kind of models for us here, we, we'd prayed up, we had planned like crazy, uh, and, and that's the way we came in. So we knew, here's, here's what we need, here's what we think it's going to cost, here's the kind of support we're, we're going to need from you, uh, and, and that's, we, right, so kind of like that. Uh, so then, not only has Nehemiah here requested to, to leave his role as, as cupbearer, he's, he's asked the king to reverse his edict, right? These are big requests. Not only has he asked for this protection, these letters, so he can travel, but now he's asking the king, hey, how about you fund this whole thing? Because timber's, like it is now, pretty expensive. He's got some serious boldness, right, to, to, to make this ask at the king. And we see the king's response there in verse 8, right? The, the king granted me what I asked. This all goes just about as well as he could have possibly dreamed. 
All right, he's going to let us go. I'm getting the letters, I'm getting timber, all this stuff. Um, and at this moment, he, he could have just been so impressed with himself. Right? This would be the moment that pride would, would, would just rise up. Man, I was right on on request. I'm so glad I did that. And I like, when I talked about Father's graves, right, he bit right into that. Like, it would be so easy to kind of just praise himself. But instead, Nehemiah ends with, with you know, showing the, two things here, right? He's showing, one, the, the true understanding about how this came about. Yeah, it's, it's wise to do all that planning. That's what you should do. Uh, but he understands that, 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 right, with genuine humility of heart, he, he credits the Lord. In fact, you see it there. It, it, this is great. If you underline things, underline this, right? For, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Proverbs 21.1, we talked about two weeks ago, right? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In this moment, the, the Lord has turned the king's heart to the good of his people to to this plan that Nehemiah is laying out. And Nehemiah knows that without God's sovereign grace, his sovereign work here, all these efforts would have been in absolute vain. See, the clear application here for, for you and I is to acknowledge the Lord's doing when our efforts succeed. It, it's, been, it's been over eight years now. I've, somewhere I lost count. I don't even know what year we're in anymore. Uh, but since, since John Dunning and I sat down with the donor... Um, and the good hand of the Lord was upon us that day. And the good hand of the Lord has been upon us in so many other ways throughout the years. The, the donor did agree to financially support starting an RUF and a, a church plant here in Manhattan, despite our incredible name, the Manhattan Project. Um, Christian, do you acknowledge the good and sovereign hand of the Lord in times of success? Do you acknowledge the grace of God when, when your business is so successful that you need a new building? Or when you receive that, the degree that you've been pursuing for years or, or the promotion of that title you were hoping for? When somebody's healed in a, a wonderful way and you could, you could credit medicine or the doctor, right? Do you acknowledge the Lord in these moments? Do you, do you acknowledge the Lord when, when pregnancy you prayed for occurs? Do you, do you thank the Lord for the faith of your children? I you know, all these things. I, I have this, this relative who, when anything uniquely great happens for her, uh, she'll say, it was such a God moment. And, and my reformed heart wants to just scream back, they're all God moments, right? That's, that's what I want to say. And, and yet, that's not her point. It really isn't. That's me probably being really ungracious because she is acknowledging that God has caused what, what she could not cause on her own efforts. And that's good. That's God honoring Let that be the way we function, that what just comes out of our mouths, that we acknowledge the Lord's goodness. I think we'd be so much more grateful people and far less complaining people if, if we began to do that more. So, so let us all see the events that unfold in our life as the good hand of the Lord. Let us give glory to the Lord for all that he does, especially, right, when we think about our own salvation, our own faith in Jesus. Because listen, there is, I'm not saying you shouldn't, right? Any, anyone who's Trying to figure out who is Jesus, yes, research it, read scripture, dig into it, you need to do this. But you also need to know that no amount of research, no amount of intellectual brilliance within you has led you to a place of faith in the Lord. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. That is a sheer gift of God, a good hand of God for you. Finally, I, I want 
to remind you again, as a child of God, you need to know that God often will not eliminate the trials before us. Right? We'd love it if, we, if God would just be our helicopter mother. What do you call them? Bulldozer mother, right? Just make everything easy in front of me from now on, right? That's kind of what we want. And, and yet, we, we know that God doesn't do that, but, but he does provide for us. He provides the courage. He provides faith. He provides integrity of character. He provides our ability to trust in him, to face these trials with, with absolute trust in the good hand of the Lord. Look for these. Let us, uh, let us approach them in the way the Lord calls us to. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, give us a greater sense of your sovereignty. Not just for theological arguments, but for the trust in our heart to grow. For the everyday moments when things are terrifying. For the things that seem out of our control because they are out of our control. Father, give us hearts that run to you in prayer, even tiny prayers all day long. Give us that intimacy where that makes sense. That we come to you in prayer for all of our needs, all of our plans, all of our anxieties, for everything. And, and give us eyes to see your good hand in the moments of our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.